John chapter 5. Yeah, so we're, we're working our way through the book of John, the Gospel of John. And yeah, so we're just starting in chapter 5. It's a very important one because it tells us a lot about Jesus, and we get a lot of application for our own lives as we, um, as we go through this too. So what I'm going to do is just actually uh, start by reading the entire chapter to get the context of it all, because it's all one section of Scripture. So I'll just pray, and then we'll, then we'll read together. Lord, I just thank you for your great grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you that um, this chapter reveals your deity, Lord, your power, but also your humility and your submission to the Father, your desire to only seek honor from the Father and not from men. And Lord, there's just so much we can learn um, about your attitude and, and the way you lived um, and apply it to our own lives as we go through. Help us to do that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so verse 1, chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. 
and he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honour the Son just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. This is John the Baptist he's talking about. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself, who sent me, has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honour from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honour from one another and do not seek the honour that comes from the only God. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So, there we go, there's John chapter 5, a fairly lengthy chapter, but it's all one conversation, so um, one 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 time. 
one, one subject, so I thought it was worthwhile reading the entire chapter to get the context. So there's two primary applications that I get from this. Firstly, I believe it's a clear picture of the impotency or uselessness of tradition and organized religion. So we're going to look at the passage from that perspective and, you know, from our own efforts versus God working through us. And the second application will be next week. So let's just jump into verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Now, we don't know what feast it is. It's probably one of the ones where they, the men had to come. Pentecost, Passover, or Tabernacles, and went up to Jerusalem. And you probably heard this before, but when you go to Jerusalem, it's always up because that's where the temple was, that's where worship took place, and that's where the word was taught. And I believe in the, um, I can't remember now, it just come to mind now, but in the Old Testament, it talks about Jerusalem being raised up and um, being the highest elevation. A pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda or Bethesda. Um, now this pool, this isn't the actual pool. This is a um, a model which is found in the um, Second Temple model at Jerusalem. So the model of the what it would look like time of the Second Temple when Jesus was around. So it's got the five porches. So you got the the long one down the sides and you got the three um, going across and that's where you get your five porches and you've got two sections so it looks like the Ten Commandments two tablets you can go and see it now we've been there uh, my wife and I you, you see, I'm not going to show you the pictures now but um, it's an interesting place to see before they actually found it as usual the critics said nah it's a doesn't exist, you know, it's all made up. But then they found it and they had to eat their words again. Now, it's, it's, people say that the um, the five porches speak of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as you can see, with one of the porches going across, it looks like the stone tablets. So verse 3, In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. So when people are blind, are spiritually blind, this is our application, they are also lame and paralyzed. That is, no matter what rules and regulations, ordinances and laws are placed upon them, they cannot walk in freedom and righteousness. It's impossible. You can't legislate righteousness. And because they are lame, they are also paralyzed. They are unable to reach out practically, unable to give lasting and beneficial assistance to those who are hurting. So blind, lame, and paralyzed is a description of the condition of every culture globally and of you and me personally without Jesus. If we are not reborn, as we studied in John chapter 3, if the Spirit of Christ does not dwell in us, we will not see, we will not walk uprightly, and we will not reach out with impact. So many lay by the pool. They were sheltered and they were covered by religion, if you want to think of it that way. But they weren't healed from the penalty, power, and later the presence of sin. So my main point here is that religion can shelter people with good values and disciplines. They can make them feel good about themselves to a degree, but it can't save them. 
For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. It's debated whether this is just a tradition or it actually happened. I don't know. So you can make up your own mind. It could be that it was real and God honoured the faith, or maybe it was a legend and it's just recording the legend. But the main point is that a great multitude of sick people believed this, that they were there to get healing from this. The second part of verse 4, Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So, guess who gets healed? It's the first one. The first one in. And that's what the religion law tells us what to do. Be the first. Be the best. Try harder. Fight your way to the top. God helps those who help themselves. You get that first. Now a certain man was there which had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? That's an interesting question to ask a sick person, isn't it? Do you want to be made well? But it's a reasonable question. Uh, it's, it's said, an Eastern beggar often loses a good living by being cured of his disease. <laughs> so we can apply that to us. As bad as our current situation is, at least we're familiar with it. We know it. It won't surprise us. We can actually be more comfortable in our present misery than taking the steps we need to be free. We sometimes can be not willing to engage in the painful battle that results in our freedom. Now, I've been in this place before, even as a Christian. There's, I struggled with sin and addiction, with lust as a teenager. And the fact is, the, those worldly things, well, I loved them at the time more than I loved Jesus, even though I was a Christian. There were things in my life which were more important than Jesus. And if I'm honest with myself, there are still some worldly things that I love more than Jesus. Now, why would I say that? Because, and this is a tough thing, if I love Jesus more than anything else or everything else, then it's going to be easy to choose God's way over my way, the right way over the wrong way. But I still find it hard. So I still have some affections for the world. My, my old way, my old nature is still rising up and it's still pulling me. So as I grow in my love for the Lord, as my love for the Lord grows stronger, then my love for all these other things is less. I switch my affections over more and more, and that's the process of sanctification. We change. We learn to love Jesus more and love God more and love the world less. So God's question, of course it applies to the non-Christian. Do you want to be healed? Um, from your sin, from the penalty and presence of sin and the power of sin. But us as Christians, if we're struggling with some issue, God is asking, do you want me to help you overcome, to sort this problem out for you? And the hard truth of the matter is that if we are still struggling with the same old problems, our answer to God is no. <laughs> God is inviting us to, to be free, but we, we're not willing yet to say, yes, I'll accept your help. I'll do things your way. We say, no, I'll be okay by myself. I can figure things out my way. I'm actually quite content with the way things are. I don't want to give up my old ways yet. Thank you very much. And we'll come back to that idea in a minute at the end, if we get to it. 
Verse 7, the sick man answered him, So I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. So every time I try to get up, someone else gets there first. You probably, you might have experienced something like this. You're about to get a break in business or a job, and then you, I had this when I was going for a job in uh, Northern. It was down to two people, and I was sure I was going to get this job. But no, someone got in before me. I was just about there. I was just about to get this job, and someone stepped in before me. Or it could be a relationship. You meet that person, and you're just about to get to know them, and you think this could be the person. No, but someone else gets in before you. I think that's how this man felt. But Jesus is not interested in helping us to be the first into the pool, to helping us get what we want. He wants to take us out of the competition altogether. Now, it's interesting. Jesus says, do you want to be made well? And the sick man's answer is very limited in its scope. He's, he's only seeing the available options that he thinks are possible. I think he's saying, yes, I want to be made well, but I don't see how this can happen. And uh, Calvin said, the sick man does what we nearly all do. He limits God's help to his own ideas and does not dare promise himself more than he conceives in his mind. And J.B. Phillips wrote a famous book. It's t- said, um, or titled, Your God is Too Small. <laughs> so we can create a God who is limited by whatever box we try to put him into. Jesus said to him, now, I'm just going to go back into a bit of um, Jewish kind of uh, tradition here. Why did Jesus choose this man to heal? There were plenty of others there. Okay, Why one that was crippled for 38 years? Well, this is a, um, a tradition that goes right back to the first century. It's, it's a fairly strong tradition. So, as I said, it's only a tradition. But it is possible that Jesus is using a real man, a real real healing, to paint a picture for us. So the picture is this. The man represents Israel. The five porches represent the law. The 38 years represent the time of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. They were wandering for 38 years. And the waters represent baptism. So the allegory goes like this. All Israel waited for the Messiah and in, while they had the law. They were afflicted for 38 years and could not enter the promised land. With the waters of baptism nearby, Jesus came and brought salvation to Israel. And uh, so that's the, uh, the the tradition that goes with this story. So rise, the next verse, verse 8, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was a Sabbath. Jesus comes and delivers a man in, when he's in this place where he's looking at, um, he's competing with others, he's trying to, he has all these rules and regulations, that's our kind of picture here, with, with uh, religion that can't save. But Jesus delivered him with a word. He says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And ne- next week we're going to dig into that. It's a really powerful statement. So Jesus delivered him this man who was lame, paralyzed, and unable to help himself. 
So this man was not delivered by a man to help him, but by the Son of Man who saved him. Now, healing. There's lots of ways that people get healed. In this case, Jesus could not say to the man, like in Matthew 9.22, your faith has made you whole, because Jesus took the initiative. He said, rise. And there's different ways. I just want to go through just quickly a couple of them. Like in James chapter 5, 14 to 16, the elders of the church can anoint someone with oil, pray for them, and they may be healed. The second way is God's people can lay hands on each other in prayer, asking God for healing, and people may be healed. Mark 16, 17 to 18. Uh, God may grant someone a gift of healing, that they are directly healed or have the power to minister healing to another person. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 9. And God may grant healing in response to the faith of the person who desires to be healed. And the example there is a woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. So Jesus commended her for her faith. And God may grant healing in response to the faith of another on behalf of the person who was healed. And the example there in the New Testament, or there's two, Mark chapter 2, 4 and 5, where the paralyzed man is let through the roof. It was his friends who took him. And Jesus commended the friends for their faith. And also Matthew eight thirteen, the Roman centurion whose servant was healed. So the servant's faith wasn't the issue, it was the centurion's faith which caused the servant to be healed. Six, God may heal through medical treatment. First Timothy five twenty three. Timothy's stomach um, takes some wine. You get over those illnesses. And Luke ten thirty four, the story of the Good Samaritan. Obviously, you can use medicine to make someone better. But in this case, <laughs> it's different. This is Jesus saying, "I'm going to heal you." Bang. But I also believe the man was saying, "Yeah, but I just don't know how you're going to do it." Verse ten. Then the Jews therefore said to him who was cured. It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now, the Jews, this is not referring to the entire nation. This is referring to the Jewish leaders. Okay, So the leaders are talking to Jesus. It's not the whole crowd. So it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. So this, he actually would have had a sleeping mat or a bedroll for you to go camping. You know what that is. <laughs> it's nice, it's something nice and small you can roll up. And it was a violation of the rabbi's interpretation of the commandment against doing work or business on the Sabbath. So this man was not actually breaking God's law of the Sabbath, but a human interpretation of God's law. Jewish law was so pedantic about not bearing burdens on the Sabbath that if you had a wooden leg... You couldn't wear it, because that's a burden. If you had false teeth, you couldn't have wear your false teeth, because it's a burden. Okay. In 1992, uh, in, in, in Judaism today, this, this obsession with um, uh, keeping the, uh, not working on the Sabbath and to the nth degree, making a phone call is considered work, right? So there was a building burning down, an apartment, and it took them half an hour to get the permission of the rabbi to make to get permission to make a phone call to call the fire brigade. And in the meantime, <laughs> the neighboring apartments also burnt down. 
And the reason is, I've got it here, um, observant Jews are forbidden to use the phone on the Sabbath because doing so would break an electrical current, which is considered a form of work. <laughs> For me, the saddest part about this is that rather than rejoicing that a man was healed, the Jews or the leaders were upset that he was carrying his bed. And this is where legalism leads. Rules become more important than people. Rules become more important than love. Sacrifice becomes more important than mercy. But Jesus reminds us that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And mercy in the Old Testament also means loving kindness. So the whole hyper-legalistic and traditional Sabbath-keeping obsession is also described in other Gospels. And I'm just going to read one of those uh, to you. It's on the screen. It's from Matthew chapter 12, 1 to 14. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. In their eyes it's harvesting. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? So Jesus does not condemn David here. He's saying that was actually a good thing to do, otherwise he would have died of hunger, right? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? So the priests are breaking the Sabbath as they're working. Someone's got to work. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And it continues... Now when he departed from there, he went into the synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. The main point of the Sabbath laws in the Old Testament were not to carry on with daily business or work for personal gain, but rather to take time out to honour God. And what better way to honour God and then to demonstrate his love to someone else by helping them. Wouldn't that be a, a common sense thing? You know, honor God by helping someone else. Mark 2.27, he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And uh, I've got a quote from John Corson on Mark 2.27. The Old Testament regulations were not meant to be burdens, but to be blessings, given not for punishment, but for protection. When reading Old Testament scriptures in this light, the law provides beautiful principles to free us to live life the way it was meant to be. The Sabbath, a day when men stops his work in order to reflect and relax, is a perfect example. So verse 11, He answered them, He who, This is the man who has been healed, talking to the Jewish leaders. He answered them, 
He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? So this guy's healed, and he doesn't know who healed him. I mean, today, if um, you know, you see these shows where someone gets healed, it's all in flashing lights and all that kind of thing. Here, Jesus talks to this guy, gives a command for him to get up, and then walks away. He's not seeking glory for himself. This is his humility. But how did Jesus, Jesus' only autobiographical statement was, I am meek and lowly of heart. He's humble. This is, to me, is amazing. Here's a guy, he's lame for 38 years. Everybody knows he's been lame. And he's suddenly walking around. And the clergy, all the religious people, are all upset. Now, what happens with us? We don't have those traditions, those really strong traditions, but we do have expectations. So we can apply this for our expectations. Have you ever been in a situation where you expected God to do something, and when God didn't do that, you got upset, or you were disappointed, or you said, oh, what's the point? (laughs) You know? So we can feel the same way as these Jewish leaders, but just in a different way, in a different context. We have expectations of how we expect God to work in our lives. So it's not tradition, it's expectation. We say, Lord, we fasted, we spoke the word, we believed, but you didn't come through. And we're really ticked off. You know, I've done all this work, and where's the results? You know, Where's all the people? Come on. We might not say it that way, but when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations inside, we can be doubting and we can be disappointed. So we need to watch out for that. God is sovereign. He'll do things his own way. Verse 13, But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. I've talked about that, a multitude being in that place, because there was lots of people there, One of the, probably one of the three main feasts. Uh, verse 14, Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Jesus found him. Jesus found him, I believe, because he was concerned for this man's spiritual health. He said, sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. So Jesus is concerned for more than just his man's physical health. Living a life of sin is worse and will bring a worse result than being crippled for 38 years. Because a life of sin will lead to eternal damnation. You can at least be saved and be crippled and go to heaven. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So it sounds like, oh, I know who it is. I'm going to get Jesus in trouble. But the Jewish leaders had a lot of power over people. And if you were excommunicated from the temple, from from Judaism, because you've broken these rules, which would... That was a that was a thing. They'd excommunicate you. Then you couldn't work. You'd have to be. You couldn't see your family. You'd have to leave. Basically, it was you'd be an outcast. And so this guy is probably quite scared. That's how I think he's feeling. He's feeling scared, and so he goes to these Jews because he could be excommunicated for breaking their traditions. 
of verse 16, second part. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. So as you know, or you might be aware that um, as Jesus' ministry gets towards the end, the war, the tension between the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders, Sadducees as well, and Jesus is just get, gets to this boiling point and they're really, really hating him. All because Jesus violated their traditions, the Jews are seeking to destroy him. And maybe I'm being a bit too bold here, but I would guess that there's some people who have turned their back on Jesus because he's violated their expectations. I've heard people say, well, God didn't heal me, so I don't believe that he's real. I'm not going to follow him anymore. He didn't meet my expectations. I really believe that he was going to heal me, but he didn't. And there's other things too. Why didn't he, you know, give me them funds so that my house wasn't foreclosed on or something like that? Why did he let me go through this? God could have easily done something to help me get to let me keep my house or whatever the situation might be. And a lot of people, I believe, um, because Jesus didn't meet their expectations, they turned their back on him and they rebel in their heart. So for us, the warning is Jesus is sovereign and he will do things in our lives his own way. And like the nobleman in the, in chapter 4, he pleaded with Jesus, come to my house, come to my house, you must come to my house to heal my servant. And Jesus says, no, you've got it wrong. <laughs> I'm the Lord, you're the servant. I want you to share your heart with me and cast all your burdens upon me, but be careful you don't start advising, demanding from or directing me. So allow the Lord to be the Lord. Be like the centurion in Matthew chapter 8 where he said, hey, here's the situation, just speak the word and you will be done. That was it. You don't need to come to my house. And Jesus says, wow, I haven't seen this kind of faith even in Israel. Uh, just that phrase, because he had done done these things on the Sabbath, just want to focus in on that a little bit more. The Jews thought to wanted to kill Jesus to slay him for desecrating the Sabbath, when in actuality they themselves were the ones guilty of distorting the Sabbath. Okay. The true Sabbath is not based upon inaction, but upon satisfaction. It's not simply refraining from work, but upon rejoicing in work well done. When the father took a Sabbath break after six days of activity, he looked at all he had made and saw it was very good. Because he was satisfied with his work, he rested from his work. And this is the freedom that we have to follow his lead and say, Lord, through your grace, the work is finished. You'll bless me. Now I can rest in the finished work of Christ. But Jesus answered them. So again, just digging a bit deeper into these phrases. At this point, Jesus is going to give an incredible, insightful, and important defense of why he has the authority to blow apart these Jewish traditions, to to rebel against them, to not follow them. He was not bound by religious systems. Now, Jesus lived the most attractive, powerful, beautiful, joyful, and wonderful life ever lived. There was a quality about him, a joy emanating from him, a peace within him, a love flowing through him that attracted the common people to him like moths to a flame. 
And if you look up uh, Mark 12.37, it says, And the common people heard him gladly. These people loved to hear Jesus speak. When he had... When he said he had come that might, they might have life abundantly in John 10.10, 10, no one challenged him saying, well, we don't see abundant life in you. What are you talking about? He was living the abundant life. He didn't. He said, I'm the source of abundant life, and no one can challenge him because they could see that, yes, you have abundant life. And that's why people left everything to be near him because he lived with this joy. Hebrews says that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness more than any of his fellows. That's Hebrews 1.9. So he had a gladness about him that was more than any other person. What is this secret? And this is what I'm going to finish with today. What is this secret to this welling up of joy, this, this abundant life that Jesus has? Well, it's very simple. It's his relationship with the Father. That's it. Now, if I were to question you about the defining principle of your life, the most important thing of your life, you might say, well, it's my ministry, or it's my family, or it's this vision, or it's this attempt to see the kingdom grow, whatever you might say. But as right and as good as those things might be, they are insignificant in comparison to our relationship with the Father. Our relationship with the Father is the most important thing. There's no... There's no comparison, no other agenda, no other ministry, no other vision, no other priority. And Jesus was so focused on his relationship with his Father that nothing else mattered. As a result, everything else fell into place beautifully. His life was fruitful, his relationships were special, his ministry was bountiful. And in the rest of this chapter, he's going to make eight statements that Jesus makes about, or eight facts that Jesus tells us about his relationship with the Father. So, because we're not going to finish them today, I'm just going to actually take you to the end and show you them all. And then we'll start working through them. Jesus is a reflection of the Father. Uh, Jesus maintained contact with, dependent on the Father. Uh, Jesus finds his security, his identity in the Father. Jesus is in harmony with the Father. Jesus was fully submitted to the Father. His validation was from the Father. Jesus was only concerned about pleasing the Father, honoring the Father, and Jesus was silent before the Father. He, he suffered in silence, allowing the Father to vindicate him. So, coming um, back to that first one, it says, Jesus, verse 17, it says, second half, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. So, whatever the Father is doing, Jesus is doing. So, Jesus is a reflection of the Father. Now, in our terminology, if we kind of said this in today's language, we, we might say, my father works on the Sabbath and so do I. God doesn't start working just because of Saturday. And now by saying this, Jesus is making it abundantly clear that he is equal to God the Father and God doesn't take holidays. <laughs> so, application for us. Am I a reflection of the Father? Do I join him in his work or am I doing my own thing? So let's consider a couple of verses here. First Corinthians three nine, for we are God's fellow workers. Second um, Corinthians six one, we then as workers together with Him. And then you've also got Mark sixteen twenty, and they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them, 
and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So the Lord working with them. And Acts 15.4 And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. See the, the pattern here? God is doing it. We do it with God. We're, we're partners with him. We Not that God follows us, but we follow what God is doing. Verse 18 Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now this phrase, making himself equal with God, if you know a bit about language, it's a present perfect tense verb, which means that Jesus was continually making himself equal with God. So this is not the first time that he's declared his deity. It's not the first time he's insinuated that he's God. He's been doing this the whole time. So regardless of what the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, or the Way International, whatever cult you might be facing or talking about, the fact is that those who heard Jesus knew he was claiming deity, and that's why they were out to kill him. Verse 19, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. So he's seeing the Father. He has contact with the Father. So that brings us to our second one. Jesus maintained contact with or dependence on the Father. He's, He's looking to the Father. So he's always looking to the Father for guidance and direction. And the power to do what the Father asked him to do also came from the Father. Jesus not only looked to the Father to know what to do, but also for the power to do it. He never did anything by his own strength while living as a human on earth. Okay. Now why, when it says there, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself, why does it say that? Well, in Philippians 2, Paul declares that Jesus emptied himself of all powers, privileges, and abilities he had enjoyed in heaven in order to become a man just like you and me yet without sin. Well, some people ask, well, how did he do all those miracles? Where'd that power come from? Jesus performed miracles only because he was in contact with his Father and empowered by the Spirit in exactly the same way as we can be. It's the same way. Jesus was a model for us. We are his brethren. We are, he, was, he became like us, as it says in Hebrews. In the Garden of Eden, you have the forbidden fruit from the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. And the consequence of eating that fruit was an awareness of good and evil. And mankind started saying, I know what good and evil is, what's right and wrong. I'm smart enough to figure it out by myself. And we become independent thinkers. We don't depend on God anymore. We're not looking to God. We're not seeing the Father. We're no longer in contact with the Father Okay, So we're not maintaining contact with the Father. That is broken. So for us, the application is, which tree are you eating from? The tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so to speak, right? Figuratively. As, as a Christian, you know that you're trusting and you're seeing the Father if you're praying. Because if you're not praying, you're not depending. We need to be praying because prayer is a sign. It, it, it's our 
way of saying, Lord, I don't know what to do, so I'm praying that your will be done, that you will point me in the right direction, that you will help me to stay on course, that you will guard my heart, that you will give me the strength to overcome those temptations. So if we're praying, we're on the right course. But if we're not praying, then it's indicative of pride because we think we can pull it off ourselves. Now, I'm often guilty of this. When I, you know, if something happens and instead of praying first, <laughs> you just jump in and you realize you should have prayed later on. I'm eating figuratively from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm saying, I know how to figure this out. I can do it myself. Okay. And I have to keep reminding myself that I can do nothing of myself, but only what I see the Father do. All right, 19. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. So the third one is Jesus finds his security in the Father. So the relationship between the first and second members of the Trinity is not that of a master and slave or an employer or an employee, but of a father and a son united by love. So if we can be like Jesus and, and simply say, the Father loves me and shows me everything necessary for me to navigate through this day successfully, and I know he's going to show me greater things down the road, our life will be simple and we'll find our security not in our spouse, not in the crowds, not what society thinks of us, but only in what the Father thinks of us. So how does a father feel about us? That God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now someone might say, well that's pretty cruel, the father sending the son to die, why didn't the father die for us himself? Well, in a sense he did. He was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Second Corinthians 5.19 not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So that is that God the Father was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Now, Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe the Father felt the pain, the Father felt the agony. And if you had a child that you had to sacrifice for something, part of you would die too in in. You know, humanly speaking, I'm struggling for words to describe this, but if your spouse dies or if someone you love dies, there's part of you that misses them, okay? And there was a separation. So the Father was also hurt when Jesus died on the cross. So the greatest insult we can throw at God is to say or think, I'm not sure God loves me. God demonstrated his love for us conclusively in that while we're dirty, rotten, foul sinners, he died for each of us personally. And so there's one thing that we should all be sure about, and that is we are loved by God. That's it. It's the message of the cross, as summarized in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So I'm going to finish on that one. Having our identity, finding our security in the Father. Because if we find our security in the Father, in because it says, For the Father loves the Son 
and shows him all things that he himself does. Jesus didn't need anything else. He had the love of the Father. That was it. It's all he wanted, it's all he needed, and it's all he looked for. It's all he lived for. If we have that same desire, if we can develop that same desire by depending on him, by reflecting the Father, maintaining contact with, with and depending on the Father, and now finding security in the Father, we can live a life which is really quite simple. We don't have to worry about all those other pressures that keep pushing us around. You know, what if they don't like me? You know, What if I don't get this? What if I don't get that job? Well, who cares? The Father loves me. I'm okay. Lord Jesus, I just thank you uh, for this chapter. I thank you for these truths. And we thank you for Jesus, in effect, opening his heart up here and just sharing why he is who he is. It's because of these things. It's uh, his dependence on the Father. It's his identity, uh, seeking, finding his identity in the Father. And uh, I just pray that we can follow in Jesus' footsteps, Lord, and, and more and more as uh, we grow in, to be transformed into your image, Lord, that we would find our security, find our identity in the fact that we are loved by the Father. And all these other um, things will come to pass too. So I just yeah, commit us to you today and uh, thank you for the opportunity to get together and to share. And I just pray that you'll bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.